You're listening to A Quality Podcast with your hosts, John Thacker Jr. and Jake Harrell. You hear people throughout this country right now and you hear businesses saying they're having a labor shortage. They're having trouble inspiring their people. I walk in every day and go, hey guys, I'm just putting this together for you. So this is yours when I'm done. Changes how people look at things. It, it proves to them that the ownership actually cares about them. Welcome, everybody, to A Quality Podcast. This is your host, John Thacker Jr. With me is co-host Jake Harrell, and we are happy to have with us this weekend, Jason Azevedo. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're excited to have you on because you're involved with and doing a lot of the stuff that we're really interested in. Uh, Jason is the founder of MRCA, the Manufacturing Resuscitation, no, Revitalization (laughs) Corporation of America. (laughs) I think some of us feel like it should be resuscitation at this point. So, Jason, tell us a little bit about that. So, functionally, we're a private equity firm, but I, I'll kind of take you through my past and what, what spurred this. So, I started my first manufacturing company. I was 15 years old. My father worked in a factory for 28, 29 years, uh, the whole time we were growing up, working graveyard shift on printing presses. And we got to see from the employee side, what factories at that time were. And they they were the most profitable factory in the country for the company that they worked for. Yet they had the most turmoil. The management and the employees were at each other's throats constantly. In the last seven, eight years that he worked there, he got laid off just about as many times with ownership changes, turmoil with the management versus the employees, just all sorts of stuff going on. And I harp on the fact they were the most profitable in that organization. The problem was is they were just there was just so much angst between them. So we got we saw this from the the children of someone working there. So my brother and I started the first manufacturing company, I'm 15 years old, and it's in February of 2007 that we start. So right as we get going, we buy machinery where things are kind of getting rolling. The, the fall of 2007, early 2008 happens. Everyone knows what goes on now. Suddenly markets are dead. So we build a manufacturing company, which was not in vogue whatsoever during some of the worst markets that we've seen. <laughs> and what we learned was that manufacturing was changing very quickly. And it was very different than it, than it was five years before. So we continued to build these manufacturing companies and we got them stronger and stronger, signed some of the largest clients that anybody could hope for in the country. And then we started seeing a bunch of opportunity that there were American manufacturing companies that the owners had no succession plan. And just like us growing up, they had told their children, do not go into manufacturing. Don't do it. It's a horrible idea. It's, it's horrible. So there's nobody to buy these companies. So we've started buying the companies. Well, in introducing MRCA, 
it's a mechanism for us to buy legacy U.S. manufacturing companies and then revitalize them, to add the energy, the life, the that that passion the owners had, but frankly, are that they're at retirement age. So we come in, we add that, we make them very healthy, very strong, and then we are actually liquidating that entire portfolio back to the employees. So we're going to do an employee stock ownership program, and we will transition 100% of the ownership to the employees. So for the uh, finance people in the crowd, business people, we've got basically like VC into ESOP. And to get from here to here, you're making the business better. Fair? We're making it better and we're also making it stronger. So we're most of the companies we're buying are going to be doing one to five million in EBITDA, which puts it usually at the lower end of uh, lo- lower to mid market. As we bring them all together and make this very strong portfolio, which is our goal across the nation, now they move to mid-market, which changes how their multiple works. And now they have the strength of locations throughout the country instead of just a singular regional company. Awesome. Good. So it sounds like there's some pretty solid business planning uh, going on there. Um, But I want to touch on two things. First, you have folks that do manufacturing and feed a family with manufacturing. Now, we spoke earlier, I run a factory and we, our current company currently has two, uh, two factories. And, you know, we feed somewhere like a hundred families out of, you know, those two locations and everyone earns a good living. You know, we have, I think in the, the, Six and a half years the company's been open. We have like 15 first time home buyers. Um, we have people buying their first new car, people having babies, you know, stuff like that. And and it it provides a good living, right? And the I guess uh attractive thing about production work is people consume goods and you're making stuff that other people consume, and in some cases they're consuming it for their business, right? Like B2B manufacturing. Um, now you're not just feeding your family, you're feeding other families too, right? There's there's a lot of benefit that's tangible to the people doing that kind of production work, right? But like you said, we have a at least one generation, like in between maybe the 60s and the 2000s, like a long span of time where people were taught, you know, like, don't go into manufacturing, don't go into production. Uh, my, my generation. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, like, uh, go to college so you don't have to work for a living, right? And then you have all these people that went to college that are spending $250 a month on a CrossFit membership because they don't work for a living. You know? <laughs> now, they, now they have to pay someone else uh, to, to help them stay healthy, right? Um, so, Tell me a little bit about that. I, I know the circles that I'm in, there's a bit of a change, you know, thanks to Mike Rowe and some of these other people highlighting uh, the benefits of all different kinds of work. Um, tell me about the mindset and particularly, here's here's what I'm interested in, and I think our audience is interested in, the number of people we've worked with that were not proud of their job that were in manufacturing. 
And so, have you experienced that? How do you overcome that? Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I grew up in a household that you were told, don't you ever go into manufacturing. Don't get it. Don't get that job. I mean, it was ingrained into us. And out of three other two of us decided to go into manufacturing. So I, I think we have to acknowledge that there was a point in time that things changed. You go back to the sixties. The reason why a mother and father were telling their children, go, go get that job. It's going to treat you well. It's going to be very good is because that was true. What happened is we had outside forces that came in with unfair labor practices at unfair wages, and it happened very suddenly. So what did American manufacturing do? It just started trying to fight dollar to dollar with labor. And that created that turmoil that we saw there for those years. But Americans did what Americans have always been amazing at. They innovated their way out of it. They created better processes. They created, but in the last 10 years, the technology, the automation, it's taken that gruesome labor away. The safety is way up. If you, if you ask a typical person when they think of a factory, they're still thinking dirt floors, grease throwing everywhere, tiny Tim putting his hand in a machine, like, they're thinking this dangerous, nasty business. But if you look at the drone footage of the new Tesla factories, I mean, they're white floors, the safety mechanisms, everything's beautiful. People are like, these are good jobs. We innovated our way to making them competitive again. And that is the change. It took time for that innovation to happen. But we're back. We're back to these are great jobs. You're starting to see more and more factories open in the U.S. You're, these aren't jobs that you're going home exhausted, sitting on the lazy boy, cracking a beer and wake up at 6 a.m. and do it again. There, you're able to leave your work. You've, you leave fulfilled because you're doing something special. So we, we must acknowledge there, there, was a, there was a dirty point in there. That, that, that is the reality. But we can't get stuck on that stigma either. Right. So in some ways, in, and this is a um, ongoing conversation, I think Mike Rowe, as I mentioned, and some others have sort of highlighted this. Um, it, when you and I think of, uh, for example, a pickup truck, um, or at least I do, because I'm the oldest one in the room, right? Uh, I still think of the cheapest vehicle that you can buy a cowboy Camaro. It's got a V8 under the hood, but you can afford it. You know, um, it's designed for work. And well, if you go into a lot nowadays, a pickup truck is among the most expensive vehicles on the lot. And depending on the trim level, it's a downright luxury vehicle, right? So there's a a disconnect between what's in my mind vis-a-vis pickup truck um, and where the market's really at and what's being sold, right? The same thing I think is true of manufacturing, where sometimes people hear manufacturing and they're thinking, you know, 1983 General Motors, and they don't realize how far advanced we've come in the last quarter century. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, I'm, of course, I, I talk to people about this a lot, but let's just take anything in the world and go back 10, 15 years. Think of cell phones 10, 15 years ago. But was somehow, that a thing 15 years ago? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, but but that, that's the, the that's the point is because so few people actually are paying attention to manufacturing. The the the, the reality is is we it was bred and pushed into us to avoid it that a lot of people haven't experienced it. That's why I invite people all the time to come see our facilities. Cause it's like, Hey, this is not what you think it is. It's, it's a whole different world now, but if you, unless you enter it, you don't see that. And, and you watch how much like the Tesla facility tour videos trend. People are interested in it. They're, they're amazed by it. I I'm fortunate enough to have some of the very earliest Tesla people on, on my team. And they're like, the, we used to bring people through and their eyes would just light up. And this is what a factory looks like. And they bought, they, they moved into a, like a, a legacy GM factory. So it's like, the, there's just a change. It's going on just like everything else. Things are changing faster and faster. Well, the manufacturing industry is just the same, except people aren't paying attention to it. Right, right. Yeah, I recall, um, John, not to cut you off there, I do recall in high school there being a poster that says, if you don't go to college, you're going to sweat and proceeded to list trades jobs next to graduate <laughs> level jobs and like what their median earnings were. And it's just got me thinking now after a lifetime in manufacturing, what in the hell was that propaganda really about? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I will tell you what, I uh, went to school with some accountants and not one of them is making as much money as all of my friends that are in manufacturing and supply chain. So and they definitely all sweat at the end of the month, huh? I, I, well, I know a April. significant amount of welders that outpace college uh, high high level college degrees. They actually most of them make more a year than the other ones still owe on their student loans. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that that is fair. Now, coming from a guy who went to college way too many times. Um, so it, there's that, that aspect of, you know, the disconnect between current reality, you know, and maybe what's in the mind of older folks, you know, frankly, um, you know, what, what we're thinking of when we say manufacturing, there's the, um, I guess, benefit of production work where you, if you have machines and stuff that makes stuff, you can repurpose it. You, you're much more agile. You can recover from something like a pandemic by repurposing your equipment. Um, you know, true story from my own company, we produce X that uses this particular medium. And during the pandemic, there was no demand for a couple of weeks for that product, but there was a huge demand for sneeze guards. Guess what we made, right? Um, and that provides, you know, a certain level of job security. The people doing the work are gaining valuable skills. There's a huge shortage across the country for skilled labor and manufacturing. So all of that is great. But then what you're doing is you're, you're starting here. You're going to end up here in the uh, ESOP, which is great. Why don't we touch on that next and talk about, you know, why that method? So what, th th there's multiple reasons. And I, I, I'll touch on the the personal reason first and the, the, the national reason first, and then we'll get into the finances of it. But the reality is these are legacy U.S. companies. 
the communities that they're in are very, very important. And when a typical group will come in and buy out a bunch of manufacturing companies, they're going to do that whole factory town scenario. They're going to buy a bunch of them, group them together, shut them down, uh, shut down all the small ones and kill off local communities. The, 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 the reality is that has been the path. We want to make sure that the ownership and the control stays in these local communities. If they choose to open their factory or shut their factory, that is the community's decision. Because every great nation, every great economy in history has been built on the back of manufacturing companies. And that, that, that there is no, that there's no real sign of that not being the case in history. When we get into the financial side of it, we have a built-in buyer too. The, the, most businesses, most private equity firms, when they decide that they want to close out and they want to liquidate and it's time to give the investors their payday, they have to go looking for a buyer. Well, I have a built-in buyer. The, the day we decide to sell, four or five months later, after the paperwork's done, buyer's there. We, we, we know how it's going to be valued. It's, it's a predictable exit. And arguably, it's a very financially rewarding exit if, if it's done correctly. Beyond that, you hear people throughout this country right now and you hear businesses saying they're having a labor shortage. They're having trouble inspiring their people. I walk in every day and go, hey guys, I'm just putting this together for you. So this is yours when I'm done. Changes how people look at things. It, it proves to them that the ownership actually cares about them, which is a hard thing to do. So you couple all of that together. We, we had decided we wanted to find a way to protect these communities that these businesses are in. My fund manager came forward. He goes, Jason, I think I have a way if you're willing to do it. And we, we agreed to do it. And that's the direction we went. Now, how do you, how do you engineer that being a profitable scenario for the people who are interested in being a part of that approach. What do you mean? Well, uh, I've just seen a lot of the going rate for private equity is, you know, sell private, build or exit when you go public. So the opposite of moving to ESOP, is that a profitable endeavor? It, it, of course, I can never promise things that, that haven't happened yet. But I'll explain the, how it functionally works. So when you build an ESOP, okay, especially when you're, the, the reason why we're bringing the whole national portfolio together as one organization, you're going to bring, we have to bring in a trustee. They're going to value the company across the nation in one shot. So they're just going to pull comps. So they're going to pull three comps. They choose the middle valuation. As long as we are large enough, the only comps are publicly, uh, private, are, uh, publicly traded organizations. So we're getting that valuation right there. So it is not a difference of one versus the other. The only thing you may lose out uh, is if a competitive buyer wants to buy you to shut you down. And that happens sometimes with PEs. But the reality is we... Our, our valuation and our exit valuation will be based on our competitors, what, whether they're ESOPing or they're, they're IPOing or they're staying private. We, the, the valuation doesn't change. 
It just changes the mechanism. That makes perfect sense to your earlier comment, where as long as you're moving from that low market to that middle market, that's right in your sweet spot for comps to get you the valuation you're looking for. And and I'm buying, I'm buying companies normally at three and a half to five X. Frankly, lately I've been buying them at about one and a half X of EBITDA. Uh, That those are the deals that we're structuring right now. When you move to mid market, and you, you're only the only competitors that have the revenue line as large as you are publicly traded companies. You're at 10 to 12x. So we, we don't necessarily have to grow the companies. We just need to get them together, get them functioning together, working within each other, and that creates the movement. And since it's an ESOP, all of the employees benefit tremendously from that uh, move. That that is really cool. I feel like this is a an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they go back in time to like 50 years in the future. I mean, our future um, to, to look at how we eventually ended up with the United Federation of Planets. I feel like <laughs> this is the kind of thing that got us there. So we really appreciate, uh, you know, your hard work and <laughs> get out of here, Jake. Um, we really appreciate your hard work and the focus that you bring, you know, you are, um, doing something that really changes lives and, and benefits America. Right. Um, so we kind of talked about the beginning and the end. Let's talk about the little, the, the middle for a little bit. Right. So you, we have legacy companies and they have issues. Right. And what do you do in between acquisition and divesting? Um, talk to me about that a little bit. So, the first thing I want to kind of touch on is we we buy good companies. Uh, we're we're not going and doing turnarounds. There are so many amazing American companies. It's just not in our cards to go buying horrible companies that need all these change. So we're that we start with a solid company. Normally, we're going to be buying a company that the owner has really kind of gotten to the point in his life or her life that they would like to exit and they don't really know how they've they usually they have children and mentally they had told themselves i'm gonna give this to my my son or daughter but they also spent the last 30 40 years telling their son and daughter do not go into this industry because it's absolutely horrible so they've gone out and gotten other jobs and they're like hey i, I really don't want the company so they're stuck in this, this realm. But what's very interesting is they've chosen not to grow normally. I have a, we have a company we're acquiring right now. The owner, his entire goal was to do as little work as possible and make $1 million a year. And he wouldn't take any jobs that would take him to 2 million because no, no, I, I just, I know the exact number I want to make and I want to do as little as possible. So we see this a lot, actually. So we're going in and the first thing we're going to do is we buy a company, we hold it for three to six months before we change anything, unless there's some like drastic safety issue or uh, compliance issue or something like that. But we really try to just let it run and we watch it because we buy good companies. So to change something right away, it's like, like buying a, a truck off the lot and then instantly going, I'm going to change the valve timing. What? <laughs> it was running. 
by so, hiring an expert and then telling him what to do. Exactly. So we go, we go by these companies, we we watch them and just try to understand them because no matter no amount of due diligence can you understand how a business runs. It, it, you have to just get in there and really feel okay. Well, why is why does that guy in the corner sit there all day and do nothing? Well, actually. He doesn't do nothing twice a year. He is the smartest guy in the room and he fixes this one thing. Okay. We understand his role now. So after that, the f- first and foremost is employee wellness. Make him, make him feel fulfilled about the job. So I, during those three to six months, I'm trying to figure out, my team's trying to figure out what jobs are hurting your back. What do you hate about this place? What, what isn't right? And we go try to fix those first. And they're usually not hard or expensive to fix. We're going to, I had a guy the other day, he was walking three or four feet between each uh, machine cycle. Well, we calculated out, he was walking an extra one to two miles a day, but he had been doing it for so long that who cares? We just moved the table closer for him. And we saved him like a mile and a half of walking a day. And it, 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 he'd done it so long, didn't matter to him. But as soon as he didn't do it, he goes, wow, I feel much better at the end of the day. So we're, we're looking for stuff like that. And then the growth comes. Now that we have an understanding of this business, we understand the processes. We've, we've made people's jobs easier. We go start executing on those growth opportunities that the other owner didn't expand on. And usually that... I've, organization we bought in California a couple of years ago, we took them, they, they got beaten by COVID pretty bad. We, they, they dropped their revenue by 50%. We brought them within three months, we brought them back up to their normal level, which was just really undoing the COVID damage. And within 12 months after that, we had doubled the company and the employees, we added some employees, but frankly, the employees were happier. They were, they, were more, they were more proud of the work they were doing and were doing twice the, the revenue because we fixed the things that sucked for them first and then we added the leverage. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm reminded of uh, the original Mr. Toyota back when they spelled it with a D. <laughs> uh, Toyota Automatic Loom Company. You know, they didn't even make cars. And you know, how he started out rethinking the engineering for the the plant was, man, these guys, their job sucks. You know, how can I make it better for him? And addressing that, uh, you know, helped, helped him out. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. So we won't get into that. Um, but it, it reminds me of that. And there's actually quite a few stories, you know, from, from my personal career and, you know, friends I've gotten and stuff. Like, if you pay attention to the human element, you know, it, it helps if you actually care about people, you know, but if you pay attention to the human element, a lot of the other aspects of what you're trying to do just work themselves out. Um, when you look at, you know, the, the seven wastes of lean, right? Well, if you're there looking at waste to remove waste for the sake of removing waste for whatever, you're probably not going to be very successful. And I know because I know so many people that you know, have tried this, but as soon as they plug into the human element and they give a damn, 
about the work, the working conditions, the people doing the work, and they're removing that waste for the employees, they compound their benefits in a way that uh, doesn't sort of make sense mathematically. Like if you were an engineer, it seems like if I remove this problem, how I'm interacting with the employee and you know the way that I address it doesn't matter, right? That guy doesn't have to walk those extra two miles a day. So I gain the benefit, but that's not true in my experience. In fact, if you approach a problem from a people-centric perspective, something happens with the team, with the psychology, with everything else, where the return on investment is many, many times that of somebody who's coming to try to make a financial fix, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so I, I was very, very fortunate to grow up in a factory household. I got to see from the employee's side and the family of an employee's side what happens when you don't care about the people. And that, that, is, that is why we do what we do is it all goes back to I don't want people to be treated or be manhandled like my father was. Like that's not fair. So we, we base every decision on that going a step further i think a lot of manufacturing owners forget we're in the people business the 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 reality is and i know every business says this in every industry oh yeah it's all about the people no no we sell labor but let's really think about what what factories are and if anybody disagrees with that what happened when other countries came in with way cheaper labor the industry got hit. We're, we, we are in a people business. Unlike any other industry, if you forget that, you will fail. That, 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 and I, I've walked into plants. I had a, we were in a plant the other day, or we were on a phone call to a plant the other day. Very interested in buying them. The books were gold. I just, I, this company, it was going to be the best thing I could add to the portfolio. And we start, we, we get on the phone with the owner. And we're like, so what do you do for your people? Oh, there. I mean, th- these jobs aren't very complicated. I don't, I just, whatever, who cares? <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> well, just, no, no, it's, we've got the, we have the best technology and the best machines. I'm like, yeah, but tell me about your people. I hung up halfway through the call. <laughs> my brother, my poor brother's still on the other line trying to like put this back together. <laughs> He's like, oh, Jason's phone must have cut out. <laughs> my brother calls me after the call and goes, so that one's off the list. I'm like, oh, because I can't fix that. That right. all of his leadership is going to believe that. I right. cannot, I can fix any problem in a plan except for treating people badly. And that, that is, that, that, that's the break line. And I, you, you brought up Toy, uh, Toyota. I, for, first thing, if you, if you want to work at a um, management level in one of our companies, you get handed the Toyota way. You're expected to nice. read it. <laughs> and be, well, I mean, this is a little outdated. Um, no, read this book. And now we can have conversations. Uh, my head of, my head of manufacturing he was 29 years at Toyota in Canada, went from the shop floor to management, and then was handpicked by Elon 
to start the first Tesla factory uh, on the, the original team. And interestingly enough, we're in a conversation, this is about a year into him working for us. And he goes, I would like to put live plants on the, uh, on the shop floor. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. He's like, never quite got that reception with that idea. I'm like, Hey, it's a warehouse. It sucks. Nobody wants to work in like, it's ugly. So he's like, yeah, go, we'll put plants here. And, then, and that is what we look for in people. Because the reality is, is we we've done every job in the building or most of the jobs in the building. And we understand that, Hey, you got to make it enjoyable, fulfilling. Purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our local sponsors. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Hi, everybody. I'm John Thacker. And I'm Jake Harrell. And we're the hosts of Quality Podcast, which you already know because you're watching this podcast. We have some exciting news for you. After years of helping companies win at lean, continuous improvement, operational excellence and branching out into the consulting space, Jake and I are excited to announce that we have formed our own consulting partnership. Please give us a visit at www.zoomopex.com, which I just put across the bottom of the screen. We'd love to get in touch with you and talk about how we can help you win right now and in the future. Win right now and in the future. Right now. And in the future. And we're back on a quality podcast with Jason. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. So we were talking about uh, approach, values, uh, how we treat people, uh, and some of your team that you've got on board there. So for uh, our listeners out there that are not in production work, not in in manufacturing, there's definitely a a culture um, that you know, you, you might not be familiar with, but I grew up in a manufacturing families. You know, my grandfather was a, a tool maker for, I think, Ford, something like that. Everybody in our family has put wheels on a Cadillac or, or something similar for a couple of generations. And there was definitely a point in time where they went from being very proud of what they did for a living to less proud, right? And we're happy to see that coming back. And we talked a little bit about that in the first uh, segment of the show. And Jason, you're helping entire communities as well as families uh, to succeed in manufacturing by sort of giving the business back to the employees. And in between acquisition and sale, we're helping those companies out. And that's kind of where we left off. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions, starting with setting aside the uh, fellow you had to hang up on because <laughs> uh, that was so extreme. But what are some common, uh, maybe more significant issues that you see um, as you're dealing with these companies? So I, I think on a regular basis, we see employees that don't know where their work is going. So they, they make this widget 
they have no clue where that widget goes. The, and, and it's hard to be fulfilled by a widget. But if you can just show people, hey, you're, you're this widget in this boat. Look at this awesome boat that we're building or this tractor or, or this iPhone or whatever it is. Really just letting people see that their work is part of something. It's not just this little isolated thing. And yeah. Yeah. I was, I was working with a team that um, shipped electronic parts on spools, right? These, these little tiny transistors, they were actually accelerometers and just about every iPhone on the planet used this particular piece. Right. And each roll was valued at like $25,000 or something ridiculous. And I had an employee and their job was to take them out of the, you know, static neutral protective packaging that they came from the manufacturing plant in and basically repackage them for other businesses to use, right? And box them up. And we just, you know, sent them UPS. There was no special uh, trucking or handling that happened. And I'm over there and this one young lady's like, man, these spools sure are popular, you know? I mean, didn't know we used all of these. I'm like, do, do you know what that is? She was like, uh, some kind of gadget, whatever. I'm like, do you have an iPhone? She's like, yeah. I'm like, let me see it. I'm like, that is what does this, you know? And I flipped the screen so so that her her screen would flip. And she was like, no, get out of here. And I was like, that's what you're selling, right? Um, <laughs> And, you know, her eyes lit up and all of a sudden she realized what she was doing because before that she was just taking junk and reboxing it and, and that was it. And now she understood why it had electrostatic packaging and, you know, all of this uh, uh, stuff. And, you know, she had a level of buy-in at that point and understanding that it really just changed the game for her. So John, you're telling us in the audience that you turned that conversation on its head. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> the almost funny lean guy. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, the reality is people want to be part of something. I, I mean, I, I, at least, at least myself, I, I like to know I'm doing something important and helpful and enjoyable that the, 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 the paycheck is, that's what, that's what, gives you the sustenance, but people want to know that what they're doing is valuable. So that that's one of the biggest things we see is just let them know that what you're doing has an impact down the chain. I mean, it goes back to kind of like the old farmer adage. Farming's hard work, but you do it because you're feeding America. Like that, And you talk to any farmer, that is part of the joy of it. So right, it's right. it's one of the number one things we see in, in plants is people are they they're not being shown what their work is creating and I I've seen it in plants before where they don't even see the end of the line so the the, the, the company's making the entire product but at no point has like the second person on the line seen the final product that ends at the end of the line and you're just like. Wait, what? <laughs> well, I think, I don't know if I'm being uncharitable here, but I think it's a really big power play for these private companies to just disguise like, hey, let's not show that guy how much money and value they're actually creating or else they might want more. 
So it's a fear-based assessment of let's keep them in a corner just doing this one simple repetitive task instead of showing them that value chain. And every time I've done that, it's had benefits every single time. You, 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 you don't think an employee sees which car you drive, you show up to the uh, facility in. Like, and I, you're totally right. I've met lots of owners like this. Like, oh, I, I can't let them know that this thing sells for $25,000. You don't think they figured it out. Guys, come on. These are smart people. <laughs> we have Google nowadays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do see all the time, like the most basic level of deception played. Like, do you think humans are that ignorant? Like the people that work for you, the governing thought is how ignorant they are because they work for you. We're like, newsflash, you're the ignorant one. <laughs> These are regular human beings, just like the rest of us <laughs> with a different well, job and- title. Yeah, and I think it brings up a a good point, an interesting point, which is there has been uh, an ongoing uh, dearth of really good people management skills across America. You know, it's definitely not limited to production work or something like that. But, you know, I went to school, I got my MBA, I went back to school, you know, and what's interesting is like in all of that, I maybe had like two leadership courses. They were some of my favorite, um, but a lot of classes on important stuff, uh, but, but we're rapidly moving into an age where getting an answer is not important, right? Like you don't have to know that equation for finance because there's an app for that. You have to know how it works, Right but you don't have to be able to get the answer. And that's going all the way down the line of a lot of the hard sciences, engineering, accounting, you know, all of that. But here's the one thing there's not an app for that's connecting with people. That's motivating people. Right. And for whatever reason that continues to be uh, just not very well trained or taught or understood. Well, and I think part of the reason for that is, is everyone has a different way of doing it. So I've got, there's five of us general partners and we are drastically different in how we approach things. It's, I I am not, I am not the most warm, cuddly, comfy person on earth, but I will kill for my people. I will do everything I can to make sure that they're taken care of. So when I show them what's going, my my leadership style, the, it resonates with them. But we've had employees who are like, you know, I, Jason's never told me good job. And one of my partners took him aside. He goes, um, I've been in business with Jason 15 years. I think I've heard him say that two or three times. And he goes, it just, it, it's not going to come out of his mouth. Like it's just, and if it does, it's, it, it's not natural to him. He goes, but when he goes, but do you, you see when he did this? He goes, yeah, we feel really good. He goes, that's his way of explaining of explaining. And I, I'm very fortunate that the leadership team I've built, we purposely have people who are very different than each other and they communicate their leadership style differently. I've got I've got one, we call him the bulldog, and it's because he his his style is a billy club. Say less. <laughs> it's full force, and he's all in and he will break a wall down. Another one, it's very quiet, very polite, so that you can relate to other people. And I think that's why it's so hard to teach 
leadership. And I think that's why people avoid teaching leadership is because there is no right way to do it. It must, it must be genuine that that, that is the important part of it is it must be who you are at your, at your soul, at your core. And I, I watch people all the time. They're, they're trying to be leaders. Oh, I was reading a business management book and it says you need to do this and that. It's like, yeah, none of the people believe what you're saying, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it really has to be grown and developed in an individual, right? It, it's not a hard skill like two plus two is four. You can't just read a book and, okay, I, I understand the theory. Like, you have to practice it. Um, oh, here comes the, the batting cage. Here it comes. You want to play baseball, you got to get in the batting cage. Right? <laughs> you got to swing at a thousand pitches, right? It's the same thing, you know, with, with leadership, you have to practice. And, you know, if it's not coming from, from your heart, then it just, it will never work. People can see right through that, right? Um, how, to, how to win friends and influence people. Like if, if you want to help people and, and win friends, right? then it'll work for you. If you don't, if you want to control and manipulate people, then people will see right through it. And, you know, it's, it's going to get you something a little bit different. Years ago, we had a uh, business analyst show up at our company. I, I had to have been 19 years old. This guy comes in in a full suit. We were not suit people. At the time we're in California, you don't like, unless you're a lawyer or a banker in California, you don't really wear a suit very often. So this guy comes in, I can help your business. And it, he comes in right as the shift is ending. Everyone's leaving. We're like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'd never noticed we did it. And he goes, huh? Why do you say thank you to your employees when they leave? Um, so I'm thankful that they were here today and they did their job. Oh no, no, you need to, it needs to be disciplined. They are expected to come here and do their job. I'm like, okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> but it, 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 we had never realized that my brother and I said thank you to every person as they left every day because we were legitimately thankful for the service they provided that day. And it's something that we've, continue to do for the years because you are thankful for hey it, you guys came here you gave everything you got Th go home have fun like thank you and then every once in a while someone doesn't get a thank you and they're like oh i messed up <laughs> <You're> like, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah yeah um it, another thing that sort of being genuine with people it helps with is negative feedback, you know, when I'm honest and direct and open, and that, that's just kind of my, my leadership style, but I'm very honest and open and direct with people. And when they earn praise, I praise them. And I am thankful. And I say, thank you. But what that means is that when it's time to say, Hey, you really fucked up, they accept it. They're not resistant because I'm not always harping on them. It's just not, Oh, you know, here goes John picking on, you know, we're not good enough again. Uh, it, it is much more impactful and meaningful. Well, I had um, a general manager. He'd only worked for us for about four months at the time. And he was like, I want to review on how I'm doing. And we sat down 
And I'm like, so you're going to fail here. And he goes, what? I'm like, you're not doing a good job. He goes, what, what, what are you talking about? He goes, we're, 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 the production's smoothing out. We're doing, oh, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the metrics look okay. You're not going to do well here. He goes, well, what do you mean? He starts getting very frustrated. And I'm like, in four months, you haven't told me I'm wrong. You haven't told me where I could stick it. You have done nothing negative to anything I've said. So either I have been flawlessly right for four months for the first time in history, or you, you don't have the trust in me to tell me I'm an idiot. And if you don't have the trust in me to tell me I'm an idiot, you will not succeed here because we throw things at the wall all day long and wait to see which ones work. And we have open conversations. And he turns to me, he goes, are you telling me I'm supposed that like, I will get fired if I don't start telling you you're an idiot. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm telling you. <laughs> I was like, I can't be around. Yes, man. Sorry. That's not, it doesn't work with our style. And then of course, now it's like, well, I, I didn't like this idea or this one. I'm like, oh, okay. So let's just keep that pattern, please. But we, we're very, very open with people of, hey, we know we're not right. Actually, in fairness, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I did a really bad job at hiring people. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, Jake and I do, you know, we, we do our best to help companies win right now and in the future. That's like our tagline, right? Yeah. Uh, Zoom operational excellence. That's like our, our side gig. And one of the conversations that we always end up having at some point is something along the lines of, you know, digging into what do you really want, right? Because we'll have people that start this company like, oh, you know, you can help us go lean. I'm like, well, yeah, but that's not a, that's not a goal. Like, what do you really want? You know, and I, I don't know, nine times out of 10, what they're really looking for is something like, X percent increase in EBITDA. Okay, right, we can do that. That has kind of nothing to do with lean, but you know, we can, we can definitely help you get there. And digging and uncovering uh, actual wants and desires. And it, when I first started learning this, which, you know, it wasn't that long ago, time flies, right? Um, it was so challenging. You know, it was a difficult thing to do. And I was like, kind of mentally going through all the notes I'd taken from sales, you know, and, and some of these related disciplines. And then, you know, it, it sort of gets, gets easier as you go along. And I, I was probably, I was kind of at the point where I was like, I'm getting kind of good at this, you know, discovery, like real discovery, you know, after they already signed the papers discovered. And I was probably like at that point before I realized holy shit, I should be doing this with like everybody in every situation. Like I'm such a dumbass, you know? And Jake actually helped me with that because this is, uh, Jake's probably more skilled at this than I am. But you know, what people kind of really want and are thinking and how they present, they don't always line up, you know? And there has to be a certain level of trust and psychological safety to be able to say what you really want, what you really mean, right? Well, and John, if I could just say for the audience and you, I trust you, you fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So there's one of the things that when we go into a company is trying to find out what beliefs are the persons 
and what beliefs were given to them. And I go back to my brother and I started the first manufacturing company in February of 2007. So here comes fall of 2007, markets are crashing, early 2008, the world is just going to hell. Everybody's, we're in the new depression, we're going to lose all our houses. Like it just, it's horrible. And we have people yelling at us. Don't start a business now. You're stupid. This is you're this is gonna fail. You're this. Blah, blah. And we start taking it all in. And oh yeah, market's horrible. We're how are we gonna ever run a business in this? And someone said something that was one of the most valuable things anybody's ever said to us. You're gonna lose everything you have. I'm 15 years old. I have $600. I live with mom and dad. I don't have anything to fucking lose. <laughs> and, and, no, and my $600. All, yeah. <laughs> but it clicked. I'm like, all of this is their own turmoil that they're mm. trying to give me. They are trying to tell me the reasons why they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Why they failed, why they're scared. And we go in, when we go into a company and we go to try to fix it, we try to find out how many of the beliefs of that the employees and the and the people are truly theirs and how many were given to them. Because once you can find out which ones are truly theirs, you go fix their actual their fears or their, their own issues. And then you get them to throw away the other people's issues. I it's there's I'm a famous one. We went to a, a company we bought this years ago, and there's a Folgers can. And inside that Folgers can had the bolts. <laughs> like, what's up with the Folgers can? That's where the, that, that, that's got the bolts for that, for the machine. In case it ever goes down, those are very special bolts. What machine? I don't know, but I, it's, it's very important. We dig into the bottom of it. They had sold the machine about 15 years before we bought the company. <laughs> Just, oh, that's a good one. But every person knew those were the bolts in case the machine get, goes down. <laughs> And it was, it just, it shined a light on guys, like, let's think things through a little bit. Let's, let's dive into that discovery of what is truly the question here. Right, right. Yeah. So a lot of that is, is related, right? Um, Discovery, like we're talking about and relationality, right? And here's what ties it together for me personally, right? I'm not going to project this on anybody else. But what ties it together is my soul, my character, my heart, what I care about, my values, all of that, right? And I actually like people. I like seeing people succeed. I want everybody to win. Um, And I like meeting new people. It's just cool, right? Okay, I'm an extrovert, whatever. That's for me. But as I get to know people and form those relationships, I'm learning more and more about them. And that allows me to be a better leader, right? That ties into another topic in uh, manufacturing, which is, you know, like longevity, right? How long people stay with companies and and stuff like that. Um, Do you have any observations or comments there on, you know, how long folks stay at, you know, maybe the some of the companies you've worked with and, you know, the why behind that. So of my first four employees, 
three of them still work in my plants. Well, and they, they, they've moved to, they moved, one of them moved from basically almost a glorified janitor position to one of our head of uh, infrastructure and automation. They've, they've, they've definitely come up the organization, but they still work, they, they still work within the companies. The way that you get longevity, in my belief, is showing people that you're there for them when shit hits the fan. And you let's go back to the 60s for manufacturing. Manufacturing gave pensions. They don't do that anymore. I mean, let's just, the reality is most manufacturing jobs now, oh, here's a 401k. You didn't, you, you, the, the, they no longer have people's backs. Uh, that, that's the reality. That's, that's why the ESOP is another reason why it's so important to me. I'm giving you a future too. I got, if you, if you, if you stick with me, I got your back in the, uh, in perpetuity. I, I see companies all the time. Oh, I've got a high turnover rate, but I, the, what are you doing to like, you're just, you're a paycheck to people. Well, guess what? The guy with the bigger paycheck is going to beat you every single time. Yeah, you mean I so, didn't put anything in and now I'm not getting anything out? Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, but, but that, that's the reality. You look at the best manufacturing companies in the country, they're, ma- they're making people feel fulfilled and they're giving them something. They're, they're part of it. It's, it, it, it's a transition that's going on right now. They're, times got tough for American manufacturing. We, we, we had a wage competition. We hadn't had the innovation to combat it yet. And what do they do? They just, they sucked away things away, like pensions. They sucked away things like any employee perks. They didn't raise wages. They really just collapsed the industry. And now we're, we're fixing it. We're moving on. Uh, I'm extraordinarily proud that of those first four employees, three still work for us. And I'm even actually very proud of the, the fourth that doesn't because he went and he had a, he had a kid and he got a college degree and he moved uh, way far away from our pl- uh, plants and he's living a great life. And it's like, Hey, the, uh, we had, we had a production level employee working for us years ago. Kid wasn't making a lot of money. It was, he, he was very entry level, had been there for nine months and he very um, cautiously came to us and was like, hey, um, I got a new job. I'm going to have to two weeks in. Where'd you get a job? I got a job at Netflix. Avid, avid movie lover. Avid, avid, like, video gamer and, and knows everything about Batman you've ever heard. We threw him a party. Everyone's like, what? I'm like, hey, he got the job he wanted. And, and he's begging more money and he's happier. Good job. And everyone's like, what, what, no, you're going to convince more people to leave. I'm like, if I can convince people to go get jobs that make their jobs lives happier, sure, bud. Like, I'm not going to talk that down. Yeah, didn't we yeah. still win with that, right? We won. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but that that's it's just a different mentality and, and we, we've always had it. And that, I, I love, I love the team I've got because they all believe the same thing. It's like, Hey guys, that this has to be more than a job or it will only be a job. Yeah. Yeah. Great words, Jason. And we appreciate you coming on to the, 
the show today, sharing a little bit about uh, what you do and you know that vision for the future, for the future of American manufacturing um, and the Americans who manufacture. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to wrap the show up with? The only thing is, is if anybody has any interest in what we're doing or wants to know more about it, mrca.net, there's actually a way on there to directly schedule a meeting personally with me. So if you want to talk about anything, I've talked about everything from, hey, here's some manufacturing questions I have to, hey, what are your thoughts on X that's going to happen in the next couple of years? So there's a way on there. If you're interested in investing with us, there is a there's an investment link on there. Please click into it. We are we're very much an open book and please feel free to reach out. Well, thank you. We'll be sure to include all of the links down below uh, for our listeners. Jason, thank you so much for coming on a quality podcast for all of our friends out there in YouTube land. Goodbye. Thank you guys.